let me say something about the Psalms themselves just as an introduction. They are, of course, great songs. They are the songbook of the Bible. They are also the prayer book of the Bible. The amazing thing as we look at this is this is a song that Jesus sang. And this is a prayer that Jesus prayed. They are also songs that are about Christ. So there's a kind of triple whammy here. If you want to look at someone else's experience of God, then the Psalms are a delight. In this Psalm, it's a Psalm of David and talking about his experience, which he's referred to before in Psalm 38 and Psalm 39. It is also a Psalm that tells us what Christ felt. B.B. Warfield, in a wonderful essay on the emotional life of Jesus Christ, talks about how we really only know about that through the Psalms that he cites and he quotes. And you see that particularly on the cross, which is what we remember today. But the Psalms also work in this wonderful way that if you want to be able to express your own emotion, then the Psalms are for you. <clears throat> Personally, I don't know of a single emotion that I've ever experienced or had which is not expressed in the Psalms and expressed so much more powerfully than I ever could in my own words. And that is true of this Psalm, Psalm 40. It is a it's a wonderful song. It's a favorite of many people. And we, are, we are going to sing it, but I want to ex explain it before we sing it. I um, <clears throat> became greatly interested in this psalm actually through a friend of mine who was a roadie. And way back in the uh, 1980s, he was a roadie for a new band in Dublin, and he phoned me up and he said, this is great. He said, this is a punk band, David. He says, you'll really appreciate this. And I said, well, what would I appreciate? He said, they're called U2. And he said, they finish every one of their concerts with a psalm. And I said, yeah, right. And they did, Psalm 40. And if you go and Google it, you can hear U2's version of Psalm 40. And it really is a, a tremendously powerful version of it. It's a song about waiting and about being patient, and about dealing with uh, the difficulties that we face in life. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord." In Psalms 38 and 39, David describes his experience of waiting. Here, he's now saying the waiting was over, at least in one sense. He describes the circumstances he was in. He was in a slimy pit full of mud and mire. He was in deep, deep trouble. The idea of the slime and the mud carries this notion of uncertainty. He's in a deep pit where he cannot see the light. He cannot get out. And the more he tries, the more he gets in deeper and deeper. Now, some of you know that experience. Some of you say, well, what's this about? But some of you know that experience. You know what it's like to be exhausted. You know what it's like to be emotionally worn out. You know what it's like that every step you seem to take 
which you're trying to sort out your life, it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. You're discouraged and depressed. And what do you do? You think, I shouldn't be discouraged and depressed. So you get discouraged and depressed about being discouraged and depressed. It just keeps going. It goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And you're a Christian and you're not immune immune from that. In fact, for some of you, being a Christian makes it worse because being a Christian, you think it shouldn't happen to you. You shouldn't get discouraged. You shouldn't get depressed because God is great, because Jesus is risen and all that kind of thing, which you know and you know is true, but within yourself, you're flat. You are in a despair. It's black. And it doesn't really help when a Christian comes along and says, cheer up. Or someone comes and tells you that Jesus is alive. Or you're reminded of all these things. You see, if any Christian was daft enough to think, because I am a Christian, every time I get depressed, I snap my fingers, I pray, it goes, you are then making the whole of the Bible to be a joke. Because here's the psalmist, and he says, I waited long, I waited a long time for God. I waited for Him. He was patient with Him. What does it mean to wait for the Lord. It means patience, means hope and confidence. You see, here's a fundamental thing. We get into a crisis and we want to stand and shout, fix it, sort me out now. And we do that with God as well. But here, David says, I waited. I'm looking. I, I, I held on. I believed that there was light at the end of the tunnel, even, even if I didn't see light at the end of the tunnel. I believed that God would answer, even if I wasn't conscious of him answering. That leads ultimately here to deliverance, to security, to renewal, to a great public witness. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. But it isn't instant. And I think What I want you to take from these first three verses is just simply this, that if you are in the slimy pit or if you get into the slimy pit, if you get into the slough of despond, if you go through that, don't let the devil defeat you by you thinking the very fact that you are there means that you are already defeated. One man writes it this way. He says, how we react to life constitutes a potent testimony and nothing is more powerful than a simple attitude of waiting trust. Patience is so difficult, especially for some of us. Some of us are very impatient people. We live in a culture which is very, very impatient. But we are being told here to wait upon the Lord, to wait for God, to be patient, to hope, to have confidence that God will answer. And I do again want to say, please, if you are a, I would say a very immature Christian, who thinks that it's just got to be fixed. It's got to be sorted now, now, now. Please don't go and teach that to people because you will lay really hard burdens upon people. The Bible tells us not that Christians will never experience hardship or suffering or sickness or sorrow or depression or discouragement. The Bible does not tell us that. It tells us that we will go through these things, but we we wait and we are patient. The second thing is, he remembered. 
Can you move it on, please, for me? Thanks, Adeline. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. No one can recount to you what I to speak and tell of them. They would be too many to declare. When we're faced with a pit, there are two responses that are are wrong. One is pride, self-sufficiency, competence. I can handle this. I can deal with this. When I um, was in ICU in Nine Wells Hospital, uh, afterwards, one of the doctors spoke to me, uh, actually a psychologist spoke to me, and said, David, you are very difficult to deal with. And I said, yeah, thanks. Uh, Why? And she said, because you wouldn't let go. Because even though you were lying basically in a coma, you still wanted to be in control. You still wanted to be able, and you couldn't do it. And some of us are are like that. I mean, I obviously had to admit that. It can be a strength because sometimes people just give up. But it can also be a weakness. And the psalmist says, look, we shouldn't have the attitude that says, I can handle this. I can deal with this. We actually need to come to an end of ourselves in order to trust the Lord. So, One wrong reaction is pride. That's what it is. I can cope. The other wrong reaction is lies, false gods. The kind of lies we tell. The lie that says the crisis is not really there. That says it's not really serious. That says it will just pass. But it is really serious. You can't just knock it away. You can't just ignore it. It's there and it's serious. You're conscious of illness. You're conscious of your own sin. You're conscious of discouragement. You're you're conscious of, of a relationship that's going wrong. And just to ignore that is as bad as to wallow in it. So what does the psalmist do? He remembers the past. It's just such a wonderful thing to be able to do, to say, wait a minute, I was in the pit. I couldn't see a way out. But then I didn't think about my pit. I thought about what God had done in the past. I remembered the wonders you had done. And there were so many of them, I couldn't count them. So I'm faced with this situation right now. But when I try and widen my perspective, I realize that although it's not working in my life right now, at this particular moment in time, in actual fact, God has come and rescued and delivered many times in the past And therefore, I believe he will do so again. Let's go on to the next one, please. Verses 6 to 8. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I've come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is in my heart. I obeyed, he says. God's activities demand a response, and ritual is not enough. Psalm 51, verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Think about those words because you don't really want that and I don't really want that. Not really. A broken and a contrite spirit. Surely I want to be lifted up. Surely I want to be exalted. Surely I want to be filled with the joy of the Lord. And God says, yes. But for it to be real, you're going to have to be broken first. Broken by what you see. Broken by what you experience. 
broken by what you feel. One thing God will not despise is a broken heart. Here's the irony. There are people here this morning who are full of the joys and everything's fantastic and you can talk about God and you can praise God and everything's wonderful and people look at you and they envy you. But there are other people who are here who are confused and hurt and wounded and really, really struggling. And God says, I don't despise that. I don't despise that broken heart. There are far too many Christians who are so scared of the broken heart and the contrite heart that we do everything we can to fend it off, where in reality, in truth, we'd be better facing up to reality. God wants brokenness and obedience. God wants a serious commitment to the will of God. Because there are some of you, and what you're like is you are so good at the spiritual language, so good at the God talk, so good that God bless you, the Lord wills, so good at discussing the Bible, so good at it all. It just comes out so flowing and people say, oh, I wish I could be that spiritual. But it's not spiritual at all. It's talk. Maybe the person who's sitting and thinking, I, 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 I'm really struggling with all this. I just can't get, I, God help me. Maybe that person's actually a lot closer than you are. See, that's the thing about the pierced ears. The old authorized version translation of the Psalms. I, we could never do it. We could never sing that. Mine ears thou hast bored. And there's no way that I was going to give you the opportunity of hearing that. Um, but it, it, it's, it's, it's accurate technically. In this, it was the idea of um, a mark being put in the ear of a slave. And really a slave who was saying, I don't want to go free. I want to belong to you. And David is saying, I so want to belong to you that I am your slave. I think also it includes the idea of the ears being opened. In Isaiah 50 verse 4, the sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I've not been rebellious. I've not drawn back. So he's really saying, I obeyed, I, I, God opened my ears and I heard God's word. And even in the midst of my discouragement and my depression and the darkness and the illness and the pit that I was in, I still believed and obeyed God. The scroll that he's speaking about here is, is the, probably the scroll on which his kingship was identified. He'd been given a task and David is saying, I'm not going to turn back. And then verses 9 and 10, let's go on to them. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips as you know, O Lord. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly. And here's a fantastic thing. When you're discouraged, when you're depressed, when you're downhearted, when you're confused, when you're hurt, when you're wounded, the last thing you want to do is be with people. And the absolute last thing you want to do is to tell people and is to talk to people. And David says, I'm not going to drift. I'm not going to turn aside. I'm going to sing the new song. The songs we sing really are, really say a lot about who we are. What the psalmist is saying is that patient trust ultimately leads to a holy life and an open mouth. 
I like the story that uh, Murdoch Campbell, an old Highland minister, tells. And I'm glad that he told it, so I feel free to tell it. It's like citing Calvin or something. It's not my story, okay? It's a, it's a great story, I thought this. He tells a story of a group of men in the Highlands who, in the old days, came across a cask of fine wine that had been swept ashore from a shipwreck. This is before whiskey galore. And they sampled its wares and then decided it was so good that they hid it in a cave. And they promised, they made a vow to each other, that they would not tell anyone about this wine or where it was. But when they came to the village where they lived, the refreshment which they had taken, as uh, Murdoch Campbell puts it, which had so warmed their hearts, loosened their tongues. And they couldn't help but tell. They'd just had some fantastic wine, and it had, they'd maybe had a little bit too much of it, and it got rid of their inhibitions. I think Murdoch Campbell is right when he applies that story in this way, that as we taste and see that God is good, as we experience Christ, it warms our hearts and it loosens our tongues. When we have to witness out of a sense of duty, well, I'd better tell someone about Jesus. I'd better tell someone about God. I'd better join this mission or do this group thing or, or whatever. It is not nearly as effective as when we experience the presence and the power and the love and the promises of God. We just, we can't help but tell. The God who refreshes our hearts also opens our mouths. Now, we're going to sing these words that we just looked at, uh, Psalm 40, verses 1 to 10. The tune is before the throne. We'll sing in a cappella, and Stephen uh, is going to lead us in singing this. So let's stand and sing. I waited long upon the Lord. There's a change. He now goes on to, to praying again to God. Do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord. May your love and your truth always protect me, for troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails within me. Be pleased, O Lord, to save me. O Lord, come quickly to help me. Well, the Christian life is never that simple, is it? You're patient. God hears. God answers. And then comes the question, but can I keep it up? He's looking and he's seeing that sin still threatens, that life still threatens. Sins are more than the hairs of my head. Everything goes wrong. I fail. And that is the experience of many of us as Christians. We just, we, we have, look, if you want to avoid an emotional life, don't become a Christian. You have to be dead, actually, but you can stay spiritually dead. If you're a Christian, you will experience a vastly wide range of emotions. And it's, here's, he goes singing a new song, rejoicing in front of the great assembly to suddenly being overwhelmed again by his own sinfulness, by the troubles of life. And that's why he prays, do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord. May your love and your truth always protect me. We always need dependent prayer because it can be spoiled. Everything we've got can be spoiled. We pray, for example, you get seriously ill, you pray and people pray for you. 
But do you pray when you're not seriously ill? Because you're just as fragile when you're not seriously ill. The difference is when you're seriously ill, you're experiencing your fragility. When you're not seriously ill, you can kind of ignore it. And that's why David says, I had to pray because my sin is always there. My fragility is always there. I was overwhelmed. If you are a Christian, please do not be discouraged at being overwhelmed. When, when it comes in like a flood, when you feel that you can't cope, in a strange kind of way, what's happening is you're seeing the world as it is. You're seeing you as you are. And that's where God comes in. That's where God helps. Verses 14 to 16, he prays, May all who seek to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, Aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation always say, The Lord be exalted. He is concerned about the future because it can all be spoiled. The godly need to be encouraged and the ungodly need to be defeated. So he prays. And incidentally, in, in prayer, there's just a simple lesson, even in these verses, a very simple one. You should pray against things as well as pray for things. He prays that those who desire his fall and who desire his ruin, <clears throat> those who mock him, he prays that they should be defeated. And we should do that as well. We're not praying that God would wipe out our enemies, but we're praying that all the enemies that we face, whether external or internal, would be defeated. It's right to pray against and it's right to pray for. Having said that, it certainly it demands a purity of spirit because sometimes we could pray against something in frustration that's from our own heart, not from the will of God. But he's praying. It's interesting because what David is saying is, I waited patiently, the Lord heard, and I still wait patiently because it's not done yet, it's not finished yet. I have to keep waiting. I have to keep relying on God. And then verse 17, let's go on to that. Yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh my God, do not delay. We could just leave it there. I mean, I think it's wonderful in there that God thinks of him. But as we look at all of this, I think you've got to look at this and say, there's something missing here. In all that's been said in this psalm, wonderful as it is, there is something that is missing. And the answer is to that, what is missing, is that there is nothing directly of Christ here, so we think. Except Hebrews 7.23 says this, there have been many of these priests since death prevented them from continuing office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, therefore he's able to save completely those who come to him, those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for him. Psalm 40 is talking about praying to God. And you and I know that our patience is limited and our prayers are limited, but there's somebody who came to pray for us. There's somebody who came to live for us and someone who came to die for us, and that is Jesus. And in a sense, this psalm is not encouraging us to wallow in the cesspit of our own hearts, but it's encouraging us to look to Christ. And I want to do that before we um, take the communion, but let's sing these verses, that, these last uh, verses of the psalm. The tune will be...
It's a really special phrase. You write in a card sometimes, someone's sick, you say, thinking of you, thinking of you. The thought of God thinking of us in, in that sense, in that compassionate sense, in that love for us is an astonishing one. Is it right to take that from this psalm? Yes, it is. If you turn to Hebrews 10 and verse 5, the words are there on the screen. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not, not desire, but a body you prepared for me. That's a, a, another way of translating the ears being pierced. It's a, With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the Lord required them to be made. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, if you're not a Christian here and you hear this about discouragement and depression and calling out to God and trusting in God and so on, there's an awful lot of that that you could probably identify with. And you almost think, well, why would I need God? What would God do apart from make me feel better? Well, this is what God did. And this is where this psalm moves into a completely different level. It is not being fanciful. Hebrews quotes it as Jesus saying this about himself. Jesus saying, I've come to do your will. Jesus saying, you didn't want sacrifice and offering, but you gave me a body. Jesus making us holy through what he sacrificed. And I want to go back to those seven points. You may not have noticed there were seven. And just go through them again about Christ. And as we think about the communion, think about this is what Christ did for us. If you are not a Christian, I do not understand why after you hear about what Christ has done, you do not say, Lord, I want to follow you. And if you are a Christian, I, I hope you will see just what just tremendous encouragement it is. Firstly, patience. Christ was patient. Christ was in the pit. Christ sang a new song. Christ called out to God. Christ went through the most incredible suffering of all types of suffering. Why? Because he wanted to save us from suffering. He wanted to rescue us. I think the patience of Christ is just a wonderful, wonderful idea. God is patient with me. Christ was patient. He was patient and suffered all of that for me. Secondly, Christ remembered. Christ knew his relationship with his father. You'll notice every time in his ministry before he goes and does something major, he goes and has communion with his father. He, he prays to his father. He calls out to his father. He remembers who his father is and what God has done for him. And he remembers who he is. And it's on the basis of what Christ knew that he acted. Thirdly, Christ obeyed. No sacrifice or offering you required. Because Jesus couldn't make a sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice. There's a wonderful expression. I don't know who uses it. One of the old Puritans talks, says, what use is a candle when the sun is out? It's useless. What use is a torch when the sun is out? It's useless. It's only in the dark. What use is a sacrifice when Christ has come? It's useless. 
We don't have sacrifices now in the New Testament church, not in the sense that they had in the old. And the old was just a shadow. The old was just a type. It pointed forward to Christ. But now that Christ has come, that is it. Christ obeyed. I came to do, I come to do your will. I will never obey God perfectly. You will never obey God perfectly. And you are not required to because Jesus obeyed for you. Fourthly, Christ spoke. He tells us the will of God as well as doing the will of God. Christ is the ultimate and the greatest preacher. Fifthly, Christ was overwhelmed. John Flavel says this, there was more bitterness in one drop of his sufferings than in a sea of ours. Please grasp that. It's why Mel Gibson's brave heart, brilliant though it is, doesn't get it. It's why every picture you've ever seen of Jesus on the cross doesn't get it. Because there is so much in his suffering. That in a, you think of the worst way that you've suffered. You think of the worst suffering that you have ever seen. And you think, how can anyone cope with that? You multiply that a billion times. And you begin to understand something of what Jesus went through. His heart was broken. My sins are more than the hairs on my head. No, no. The sins of other people that he faced, he experienced, were more. I think it, it is extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary, the, the, the sense of Christ being overwhelmed. And then sixthly, Christ prayed. He was attacked by Satan. He was attacked by the ungodly. And he died for the ungodly. Spurgeon, as always, puts it beautifully. He says, he groaned that we might sing and was covered with a bloody sweat that we might be anointed with the oil of gladness. We can sing the new song because Jesus groaned for us. We can be clothed in the robes of righteousness because he sweated blood for us. And the seventh thing is this, Christ was thought of. You thought of me. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was it the truth that God at that point hated Jesus? No. The love of the Father for the Son at that point is overwhelming. But the Son does not experience it. Much in the same way as sometimes we can feel that God hates us or that God has deserted us or that God has left us alone and yet God's love for us could be greater than ever, just we do not experience it. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he felt it. But I think that at that point, God the Father was, the, the, the love between the Father and the Son is always there. It's always constant. But maybe at that point, almost more than anything, that, that there is this, you thought of me. Imagine, let's come back to this, you thought of me. And, and, and I'll finish with this. When we say we'll think of someone, imagine the person you're closest to. You say, I'll, I'll think of you. And you think of them a lot. And you do. You know, I have a daughter in Australia. And I think of her a lot. But I'd be lying if I said I think of her every single minute of every single hour of every single day. I don't. You're in love with somebody. Okay, you may think you think about them all the time. But occasionally food comes in and other things that make you think of different things. 
When we say we think of someone, we don't. We spend a third of our lives asleep. Sometimes we have other things on our mind. Perhaps even more importantly, sometimes we're saying we're thinking of someone and we don't know what is happening to them. But when God says he will think of us, verse 5, Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you plan for us, no one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them, there'd be too many to declare. Verse 17, May the Lord think of me. God doesn't sleep. God doesn't slumber. God doesn't experience different emotions that cast out his thoughts of us. Because God is God, he is able to think of every single one of us individually and collectively and for those thoughts not to be obscured by lack of knowledge, by lack of understanding of our circumstances, or by him being too busy. When my atheist friends mock and say, ha, how can you believe in a God who does this, this, and this? They haven't grasped who God is. They are, they are limiting God to being some kind of giant superhuman being. But God is absolutely beyond that. There is nobody knows you more intimately. There is nobody knows your circumstances more deeply than God. And that is an astonishing thing. He thinks of you. How do you know he thinks of you? How do you know what he thinks of you? This is how you know the bread and the wine. Because the bread is the body of his son that's broken for you. The wine is the blood of his son that was poured out for you. That tells you he's thinking of you. You think of the card that you get from somebody and says, remember, I'm thinking of you always. Or the wee token that they send you. God sends you a token. Yep, these elements, if you like, are tokens. They are tokens of his love. But they are, they are tokens of something that is incredibly real. Yep, there is a pit. And it's a deep and a dark, dark, dark pit. But there is, as Rabbi Duncan says, no pit so deep that Christ has not been there already and that Christ is not there with you. And that's why for the Christian it sounds such a paradox that we glory and exalt in the cross because it's through the cross that we are saved, that we are lifted up out of the pit, out of the miry clay. That Jesus went through all of this just for us. I find that incredible, and I really mean incredible, to the extent of which, you know, people say, well, there are things that cause me to doubt. You know, did God create the world, and is, why did God allow this to happen, and so on? Do you know the, the thing that's more overwhelming to me than all of these different things is, did Jesus really come and die for me? Because if that is true, everything else is so simple. Everything else is it's so astonishing. It's so astounding. And even in the blackest pit, I can have this double emotion of feeling discouraged and depressed and overwhelmed and at the same time be full of hope and be full of joy and be full of patience because of what Christ has done. Now, we're going to sing When I Survey. Um, as uh, guys come up to lead that, um, maybe someone can go through and tell the children they can come back. And as we sing it, I want you to think about what's been said. We sing it almost as a prayer um, 
Just think of what the Prince of Glory did. Psalm 40 describes his experience. So does Psalm 69. So does Psalm 22. There are other of those songs that describe his experience. When you survey, when you look upon it, just think, this is what Jesus did for me. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.